I'll take first watch. Hello, and welcome to an all-new Happy Halloween episode of the First Watch Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm here with Cole. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. And today, we're going to be joined by Morgan of the Jams and Tea Podcast, following up Jake, and uh, joining us for the first time since we discussed Nope in the summer. How are you, Morgan? As we were saying before we started recording, it's a Sunday, so I was in a rush to do anything. Something had already gone wrong. Feeling very lackadaisical. <laughs> Relaxed. <laughs> Vibing. Ready to talk about Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure, a movie that all three of us enjoy a great deal and that just got a Blu-ray release from Criterion this month. But before we get there, I wanted to talk a little bit about Morgan and uh, give you an opportunity to tell us what you've been watching this season. I've managed to watch exclusively horror so far this month so i'll stick to some of the new releases i'll start by talking about werewolf by night the uh, marvel disney plus extravaganza directed by none other than the batman maestro michael giacchino it's a horror property by marvel under kevin feige so you know <laughs> it's fine yeah. Yeah really amped up off that when it first dropped like talking about it's easily the best phase four release all that kind of thing i remember the trailer looked cool i, did, I haven't seen it it was like 50 minutes long like 48 maybe yeah weird length yeah that sounds like an episode of daredevil <laughs> yeah i mean which is like i get it's supposed to be like a halloween special or something the cast is stellar you have none other than gael garcia bernal of Itumama Tambien, and you have him in the lead role there, and you just kind of waste him on this 50-minute thing where he doesn't really do very much, which I'm torn between wanting more and wanting to keep him far (laughs) the fuck away from the the complex. Dip in, dip out, that's it. Yeah, get your check, get that bread. Call up Alfonso. (laughs) Yeah, the whole thing's an interesting enough novelty that if you have 50 minutes that you want to kill then you know there are certainly worse ways to spend it speaking of streaming only releases i watched the new hellraiser reboot remake whatchamacallit on hulu it's 120 minutes and it feels about 60 minutes too long Mm -hmm. um directed by david bruckner of the night house with Rebecca Hall, which is a decent little film. Save for the last 20 or 30 minutes or so, it's a fairly by-the-numbers and plain unraveling of a mystery type of thing with some weirdo Xenobite shit sprinkled in between, which is so strange for a Hellraiser movie to feel like that, because when you go back and watch Clive Barker's original It's like the fact that he is a first time director and read like two books about directing before making that film lends to just how fucking bug nutty the whole thing is. (laughs) And it really works as a tone and atmosphere and general experience. And this is basically so 
rigid and practiced that it, while I, I certainly didn't hate it and don't really even think it's bad, it just doesn't feel like much of anything at all. Considering the Halloween amounts of sequels that the original film has gotten, there's <laughs> certainly room for lifeblood to be re-injected into this franchise. And this just kind of landed with a soft thud. It feels like Hellraiser is really ripe for a modern readaptation that injects a lot of sexuality into the mix. Obviously, that's part of the core idea yeah. of yeah. Hellraiser. Oh, yeah. It's so, so deeply unhorny. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. It's so sanitized. Which is the exact opposite of what you would ever want that to be. And that's what I mean. Like, I just think that there's a, a potential for that. You no, know, it's a movie that's almost entirely the original, the entire series really, is entirely predicated on costuming and art design and just things that look cool and captivate your imagination because it's like weird, horny monsters. Like, just run with that <laughs> in <a> direction. <laughs> yeah, it does indulge in that towards the last act. More reserved, but to a degree that makes sense for the rest of the film. But, you know, that's, that's not what I want from a film called Hellraiser. <laughs> On the note of Halloween and its 8,000 sequels, <laughs> watched Halloween Ends, everybody's favorite motion picture. <laughs> it's deeply funny to me, the sound thrashing that this film has gotten pretty much across the board with a handful of horror-loving weirdos really writing for it on the outer fringes of reception. I really enjoyed it. I would say it's probably my third favorite Halloween film. Not that that's fucking saying anything. <laughs> so it's a long franchise. John Carpenter, we love you. Yeah. God bless. Get that money, girl. Thanks yes. for the music. Uh-huh. The rockin' tunes. I did enjoy this one. It had a fairly, a really very fresh and sort of innovative to the franchise approach to it. More Carpenter's Christine than his Halloween, which I found to be a really fascinating bent to take. And especially after Kills, the previous film, I'm so fucking fed up with hearing about Michael goddamn <laughs> Myers. I feel like the 2018 movie really worked because it oriented itself on the Strode characters it oriented itself on Haddonfield yeah. as like an ensemble just kind of in that same way the original does it's not all this stuff about like oh his background oh where's he from he's the shape he's like the boogeyman <laughs> I don't give a fuck about Michael Myers dude <laughs> he doesn't matter he never mattered really I don't even care so much about the mythologization of Michael Myers I think to that end the 2018 film works because Lori is obsessed with Michael and getting rid of him. And she's fucking crazy. Right, right. And she's really the only one. Yeah. Everyone around her is like, stop starting shit, bitch. Sit down. <laughs> she's going Sarah Connor mode with the pull-ups. <laughs> yeah. Relax, girl. Relax. All of the things that are interesting about ends are things that have not been advertised. So I can't really get into that. But I certainly think it is worth watching if you have even the slightest enjoyment of any part of the franchise, really. <laughs> Kills was like a drag. Kills is really weird, too, because it's like, 
it's really carnal and it's like a lot of Michael kill scenes and stuff. You can't really hang the same critiques of maybe like five and six on it or H2O on kills. And yet it's still just kind of like, what is all this, man? Like, why is this so lifeless? Where's the anything here? Like, why does this exist? I wouldn't say that I'm worried because I don't have much investment, but the David Gordon Green Exorcist trilogy? Ugh. Oh. I don't know about all that. Leave Ellen Burstyn alone. Stop this. Exorcism movies are like so popular. You don't need to make an exorcist movie to make an exorcism movie. Right. Have you guys been getting the trailer for this movie called Pray for the Devil? Yeah. It looks like it came out in 2009 <laughs> and was simply held on the shelf until such time as it was deemed worthy by someone. Those were like the biggest fucking shit at like the tail end of my high school years, basically. <laughs> Emily Rose and all that. Oh, yeah. I've gotten the trailer for Pray for the Devil before every single movie <laughs> I have seen. The consequence of too much horror. Lead actress uh, looks like what happens if you order Florence Pugh from Shine. <laughs> Not that. Uh, yeah, Halloween ends. Real interesting movie. I think you'll probably hate it. <laughs> it's all right, honestly. Like a lot of interesting new ideas. Not sold on the execution. It's the kind of movie where it slides by on a couple of ideas that I am just so entertained by that their execution doesn't always come together. And I don't really mind that so much as, uh, as long as I see the stabby stabby and the synth goes, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's a Halloween movie. Take it or leave it. Uh, Last thing I'll mention is the runaway success story. Terrifier two. It's so weird that this movie, A, exists, and B, I saw it in a theater and not, you know, on a DVD at the bottom of Walmart's $5 bin. The very bottom row of the red box. (laughs) Yeah. So it's about two and a half hours long, which for a slasher movie, you want to go cut, stop, (laughs) stop it. And does it earn that runtime? Fuck, no cut the whole like first 30 minutes off of this thing basically but once the film gets going and you sort of settle into its extremely digital flat cinematography it sort of morphs into one of the most gleefully cruel things that i have ever seen in a movie theater or like just ever in any context uh there's a sequence where Art the clown breaks into this girl's house on Halloween night after knocking on her door with a trash bag full of rusty saws and holding it out to her, asking for candy in a mime-like fashion. After that, he breaks into that house. And um, I've seen maybe 60 slashers, I want to say. So, you know, I've not covered the breadth of the genre, but I'm experienced. The most cruel and disgusting murder sequence I have ever seen (laughs) in my life happens. And the rest of the film rides off of that energy. There's a really synth-heavy Carpenter-influenced score throughout the whole thing. It's just such an excited homage to so many different kinds of things. And then it takes all of those things to the 
50th degree, the phrase more than the sum of its parts has rarely applied more. So I have two thoughts. One, Art the Clown is either a great design or a horrible design because I fucking hate looking at him. I hate looking at him. <laughs> yeah. The answer to that is yes. <laughs> this is called Terrifier 2. But I don't think it's actually the only the second Art the Clown movie, right? There's like a few earlier yeah, the ones. third. Yeah, I think there's just one, and like the first one, All Hallows Eve, is like a anthology. Yeah, that got one, it. That word. This is kind of an interesting success story, like you said. It's like a two hundred fifty thousand dollar movie, just extremely low budget, but being shown in theaters and getting people to go see it. And I think one of the reasons actually is because there are multiple petitions to have it removed from theaters like the reaction to the movie oh yeah has been so extreme in some cases like people vomiting walking out demanding refunds <laughs> for such a low budget movie it's a really big deal to get this type of groundswell of negative attention because that yeah. brings more positive attention too. the whole marketing and word of mouth spreading around terrifier 2 has been so like i thought we were so far past this in terms of just the way that people talk about movies but i found it really exciting just to be along for the ride even if the film itself is you know just is pretty good it's been a really cool fun period where the horror movies even the low budget stuff have been doing well you know we talked about that with smile last week just the way yeah. that these movies can hang on and do well week after week because the genre is sturdy like people want to go see scary movies because it's halloween yeah. and that ha that has worked for every movie except halloween ends <laughs> yeah. like an 80 percent drop off just <laughs> it's thanks peacock <laughs> hard oh yeah what the fuck is peacock man <laughs> Uh, that 70s show is on it. I like that. The only place where you can stream Jurassic World Dominion and Minions Rise of Gru. Thank you, Universal. Blech. Blech. <laughs> so to kind of build off of what I was talking about last week, the Italian horror and giallo genres, I watched a couple more by Mario Baba. The one that I preferred of the two is The Girl Who Knew Too Much which is a very early Baba film. It's actually kind of considered to be a proto-giallo. It predates Blood and Black Lace. It's shot in black and white, and it doesn't necessarily hold to every single giallo convention that you might be aware of. However, it does kind of lay the groundwork for a lot of them. <laughs> the Girl Who Knew Too Much is a story about a girl, an American, who is traveling in Italy, who's a big fan of like pulpy mystery novels to visit her aunt, who dies of a heart attack. And then she gets immediately bugged and knocked out. And upon recovering from being knocked out, she sees a woman stumble across the street, punch over, and there's a knife in her back. And then there's a man who comes and recovers the knife and drags her body away that you see. It's got all these different conventions that you might associate the giallo and then eventually it kind of becomes like a lot of italian genre films a really seething takedown of the state of cops of journalists that cover certain different types of crime up and it's a reflection of fascism and corruption throughout history in italy and it's just like for such a pulpy genre movie it's so loaded with that kind of material and then it's also just 
beautifully shot. The other Baba I watched, I did not really like particularly, but it was uh, Bay of Blood. Mm. It's almost more like a slasher than a giallo. It's like yeah. Thursday the 12th, if you will. <laughs> Kids getting naked, swimming around, getting stabbed, all that good kind of stuff. If you enjoy those types of movies, definitely would recommend checking that out. All of the Baba stuff I've seen is like doing what other people would do 10 or 15 years before they would start doing it. He's yeah. like completely a visionary in his field. And not just like that they would start doing it because it became popular. They did it exactly like he does it. <laughs> <laughs> He's the blueprint. The next movie that I rewatched was James Cameron's The Terminator. That was not a movie that I loved when I was a kid. We were at Terminator 2 Judgment Day House, and that was just how we rolled, and it's still how I roll to this day. But I recently, you know, within the last couple of years, revisited it and just kind of had this fucking awesome experience coming back to it as an adult. And I rewatched it this year. I talked about Halloween last week, and I think that there's so much John Carpenter Halloween type influence on the Terminator, which is kind of like a quasi slasher, in addition to being, you know, the time travel and the action and right. all the stuff that you kind of associate with those movies. It's like a slasher with guns <laughs> and motorcycle chases. The parts where the T eight hundred is just walking around neighborhoods and knocking on doors right. and blowing away Sarah Connors. I almost think the car both him and Michael Myers drive around in are the same make and model. I can't remember exactly, but they're they're very similar in my head. Just so much of the iconography is like overlapping. A lot of later iterations of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode, because of the weight of that first movie, they make them siblings or they give them some reason why like they're destined to come together, that type of thing. The Terminator is really built around that because of the time travel elements and the funky sort of way that it's all set up like the idea that sarah is the only target for these two time traveling characters adds that kind of mythic weight that all those halloween movies try and go for but doesn't ever really make sense yeah final thought on that is just that michael b yep fucking goat the goat <laughs> enough said i recently also rewatched the abyss and he's really really good in that too just throwing it out there the abyss is great watch the fucking really long specialized version it's ah. looking at titanic like yeah this is all right michael bean should have been jack <laughs> deeply deeply controversial take on this particular podcast okay i do have i do have two more because one of them a classic perhaps the classic 1968 george a romero's night of the living dead yeah. Ooh. what a banger <laughs> What, what else needs to be said? That's a movie that actually, in terms of Carpenter Cops, reminds me considerably of Assault on Precinct 13. Ooh. Kind of a similar setup where super low-budget movie, all the characters get compressed into one place. They're kind of fighting this force that's bearing down on them. You know, I love that movie because like, the zombies don't act anything like stereotypical zombies. They problem-solve and they're breaking windows. This was the movie that established the modern idea of the zombie. Which I think has basically, mm -hmm. other than in like Dawn of the Dead and other <laughs> George A. Romero movies, never really been compelling to me. I've never been a big zombie guy, but I like that trilogy quite a bit. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like they're incidental to what Romero is really getting at with each of them. 
in many ways, Night of the Living Dead is about race and civil rights. Oh, yeah. And Dawn of the Dead is about consumerism. And Day of the Dead is about fascism. And zombies are sort of just tools of the trade in order to beat around those respective bushes. You know, I think there's different ways to interpret it. In Night of the Living Dead, just like in Assault on Precinct 13, it's what if there were no rules? What if people didn't care that it was wrong to hurt you? What if people didn't care if they hurt themselves and they just came at you relentlessly? And it's a very simple concept, but it's executed so well that you're just tense for the entire movie. The kind of coolest thing about Night of the Living Dead to me is the history of it. And I know, Cole, you're into this too. Mm. 1968 is the year the Hayes Code went away. There's a paradigm shift in that movie where a child, hey, look, Assault on Precinct 13 again, where a child becomes a zombie, kills their parents, starts eating them. And it's like the horror movie fucking leveled up in America right then and there, right at that very moment, just like it did with Psycho. My favorite bit of writing I think that Roger Ebert ever did was his review for this movie where he was just talking about kids coming in expecting to see some like goofy ass Star Trek shit. Yeah. And then they were just like weeping at what they saw. Oh, oh so good. Time. <laughs> it was that wacky moment in time where the new writing system hadn't fully been established yet. So all the little kids were able to see this and get traumatized for life. Oh, God, so good. The thing that made me want to revisit it, just in addition to wanting to watch a horror movie, was I saw some kind of four-shot tweets of it, but it was like a long thread of different shots of like the characters like looking at the TV or looking at the radio. And it was blocked exactly like a John Frankenheimer movie. It looked like the Manchurian Candidate or Seconds. Just has that fucking really beautiful black and white when the lead character is just getting like so exhausted boarding up the house, you can really see it in his eyes. They really kind of put you right up in his face. And that house is just so fucking claustrophobic. Oh, by, yeah. Like, oh, a yeah. 30 minute mark. Like, I'll get eaten. I don't care. Get my ass out of here. <laughs> it's amazing how much wood they managed to find yeah. in that place because it doesn't seem that big. The final movie that I wanted to talk about, I don't even know if I'm going to say this right. Victor Shoj, so- so- I don't know how to speak Swedish. It's a The Phantom Carriage uh-huh. um, from 1921, a silent film that was probably the single biggest influence on Swedish director Ingmar Bergman. Oh, yeah. The Phantom Carriage is a very Dickensian story about basically a lout, just a rotten guy played by the director himself who dies on New Year's Eve at the stroke of midnight where he has to become the driver of death's carriage for a year, basically just ferrying all the souls to the next life. And it's a story about him reconciling with his past in a very kind of Christmas Carol sort of way, if you will, it's the Dickensian cup, is that he's just sort of being confronted with all these different things that he's done in his life and choices that he could have made and the people that were in his life that, you know, were trying to kind of push him in a certain direction that he didn't want to go. If this drama were written into a film from 1968, I would be like, wow, what a sophisticated, beautiful movie about life and death. And it's from 1921. And nobody talks. (laughs) 
I was really blown away by just like how rich of a drama it was and complicated and confrontational. It, it's quite a vivid portrait of its characters for whom mm-hmm. it has an endless amount of empathy. Oh, and then yeah, on top yeah. of that, it's like, you know, Vampire. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's just all these gorgeous images of death and the scythe and sort of foggy, gloomy winter Sweden. Mm-hmm. In addition to watching the movie, on the Criterion disc, there's two scores that you can watch. The second of which is by an experimental band called KTM. has a member of the band's son, O, in it, if you're into that kind of thing. Oh, it's very, like, drony and noisy. And it brings out the <laughs> solemn, despondent tone of the movie very, very well. Very touching. Really, really moved by it. My favorite first watch of last month was Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers. Oh, yeah. Those movies go together very well. A lot of lady on a deathbed, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Feeling great. Loving the season. Uh, right. So, because I've had a crazy social calendar and work calendar, I haven't really seen any horror movies recently, unfortunately, tragically. But because I live in God's chosen city of Los Angeles, I am now in the middle of award season. So, all of the prestige dramas and international films are coming in hot. First one I'm going to talk about today is Tar, directed by Todd Fields, his first film since 2006, which was Little Children. Tar is the story of conductor and composer Lydia Tar, played by Kate Blanchett, who's considered one of the greatest living musicians, EGOT winner, and she's just about to conduct Mahler's Fifth Symphony. And right before this whole process begins, one of her former students commit suicide. And this is a student who was accusing Tar of mistreating her. Boy, I love whiplash. (laughs) (laughs) So as she's preparing for the symphony, you start to really see just how wretched of a human being she is. It's kind of like a Jake LaMotta, Daniel Plainview, like unraveling of just the depths of human depravity that someone can sink to. Yeah, I also got the chance to see this, and I found it to be incredibly impressive. Obviously, Blanchette is incredible, and it's just a really intelligent portrait that I think uses the setting of Berlin in a very thoughtful way to explore some parallels between Lydia Tarr and political leadership that we might associate with Berlin, both the Nazis and the communist regime, stuff that connects to what we talked about last week on the Suspiria episode. Through all of her backdoor politicking, Tar really pushes away anybody that might be considered her left hand, her partner, her assistant, all the members of her orchestra, her actions just push these people away and away. And you see that she just becomes so isolated. You're watching someone fall in real time. There's like a couple of references to like cancel culture here and there. There's like a joke about James Levine, (laughs) which freezes the room of anyone who's watching it. But it's not necessarily, you know, just like a cancel culture movie about, oh, yeah, here's like someone who's done a lot of horrible shit getting what they deserve. I think it resists being as simplistic as a cancel culture movie. In fact, I really thought that it was just a great representation of the modern world, modern technology, and particularly how those are tools which can be used to hold people accountable, even at the highest levels of power. You're watching a 
person who's become so important, so powerful, so mighty that they've lost the sense of what it means to be human and you watch them fall towards the bottom. This is just a masterfully done character piece. I mean, Kate Blanchett has a fantastic career already, but this is a career highlight and it's a highlight for the ages, honestly. Is there any realm where she does not win the Oscar for this? Um, like, you know, they might as well just start carving her name in now. Yeah. Yeah. It's just an incredible film. My second favorite of the year. Yeah, it's in the art house theater that is about an hour from here. So that's somewhat inaccessible. And that annoys me. Speaking of other inaccessible stuff, <laughs> slowly expanding, I just saw Park Chan Block's decision to leave. This is a romantic thriller mystery about a police detective who's investigating a murder. This immigration official at the border to stop people from crossing over into South Korea. He's found dead at the bottom of a mountain, fell right off the top. And he's investigating the immigration officer's wife, who seems really, really suspicious. And there's a whole lot of evidence pointing to her as the murderer. However, despite the fact that the police detective is married, he starts falling for her romantically. Oh, I love park movies. Love <laughs> basic instinct. And it's like, is he actually falling in love with her? Is she toying with him just to erase the evidence of her crime? Who knows? But it's so lush. It's messed up, but it's like the most romantic movie of the year by far. Oh, I love it. Also, oh, I need just it. incredibly made. Like, there's a million different transitions that Ooh. were making me go like, all right, the spirit of Alfred Hitchcock is alive and well. I'm getting excited. <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> yeah, so that's my third favorite movie of the year. So my number two and my number three are now locked in. Whew. Is Vortex still leading the pack? Yeah. Gaspar Noe undefeated. Let's go. Yeah. Although that and Tar are kind of having a tussle. Okay. All right. So, uh. I love we'll it. Have to see. I love it. And both of these movies are slowly rolling out. Hopefully by sometime in November, you guys will be able to see them. The theater I mentioned earlier is getting it this week. Oh, nice. Which happens to be Halloween weekend. Perfect. So the movie that we are here to discuss today is Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure. It's a 1997 psychological thriller, which centers on a detective who is investigating an apparent series of murders all perpetrated by different killers but that have the exact same pattern to them as if they were serial murders in particular the victims are all found with an x cut across their neck cutting open both their carotid artery and the mina cava and the detectives can't really figure out what's going on in all the cases the suspects readily admit that they killed the individual but that they don't really remember why. Or maybe that they do remember why a little bit, but they don't really have any knowledge of why they're carving the X into their throats. Something's weirds going on. Meanwhile, the embodiments of chaotic, evil D&D characters washes up on the beach wearing the world's sickest coat. Finally fall, now I can start dressing. <laughs> <laughs> and we see him engage first with a man on the beach who is a school teacher, and then after that, a doctor and a few other different individuals where he seems to engage in a sort of hypnotism 
with them. Mostly using a cigarette lighter. This is a movie for people who love cigarette lighters. Little Zippo. Mm-hmm. And is inducing these individuals to commit the string of murders. So, mystery solved, right? Cool. Wrapped up. Everything's fine. Not quite. <laughs> these two different sides are sort of barreling at each other, both the investigator and the criminal. Very few movies scare me. That sounds like a brag, but it's not. It's just a natural byproduct of watching a shitload of movies and a shitload of horror movies. This movie <laughs> is unnerving as hell. Mm-hmm. I think the most terrifying thing about it is it really digs deep into the darkness of the human heart and the fact that anybody can be pushed to murder. It's sort of like you were talking about earlier with Night of the Living Dead, but it attacks very specific people where suddenly the veneer of polite society is removed. A switch flips in somebody and they lead pipe their lover to death in the head and the humorous almost but equally upsetting one of the first scenes in the film a school teacher winds up becoming one of these individuals who murders his own wife and when we see the aftermath of that he jumps out of a window Mm -hmm. the framing of it's kind of from a far way away so you just see this guy emperor's new groove i'm sorry out the fucking window like it's such a great reaction image out of context it's very comedic and then you cut immediately to the bed covered in blood and you know what has happened because you've seen enough of the victims up to this point. You understand the pattern. The movie kind of does an interesting thing where it really plays with how a thriller usually hides a lot of stuff from you. This is quite upfront. Right. It's very much willing to tell you. It's like, no, that guy killed his wife. Mm-hmm. He did it. And that guy induced it. He did it this way. And it'll tell you that because that's not really where the tension comes from. It comes from within these different characters. We've got Takabe, who is the detective. You've got Mamiya, who is the killer. Killer. He doesn't kill anyone. That's the whole thing. But, like, the perpetrator, if you will. And then you've got Sakuma, who's the psychiatrist character, because you've got this detective and the psychiatrist who are each cooperating to try to solve this case. Mamiya, again, the perpetrator, comes into contact with a series of individuals who each try to handle him in some way, shape, or form try to address the way that he behaves. Because when he appears, he's very sort of confrontational Mm -hmm. in a way that's not aggressive. Meaning, they ask him, who are you? And he's like, where am I? He doesn't just dodge questions, he asks new questions. If you ask him about himself, he asks about you. And he's very elusive and frustrating. Psychological equivalent of like, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. Constantly. Mm -hmm he will just kind of perform this routine with people over and over and over and bring them to their breaking point with their own patience with him. Of course, the way that the elementary school teacher tries to kind of get through to a kid that misbehaves in this way, they're patient for a while, and then they're like, all right, fuck you, you little shit. They get a little (laughs) bit more tense. They get a little bit more aggressive. The Mamiya character sort of represents inducing people to act as if there was no social order in two different ways. One is through the hypnosis, which, you know, gets people to murder each other. And then the second is through this frustration way where somebody that's trying to help him eventually then just kind of wants to snap back on him. And that actually kind of reminded me a little bit of Clockwork Orange, Mm. the Stanley Kubrick movie. Because Alex, this character who's just like willfully an evil prick, going through all these different systems within the state, and none of them know what to do with him, but they all go through the same arc of like, we're going to help you. 
never mind, we would rather murder yeah. you. It's like the fascistic solution over and over and over and over. And I just kind of had that same vibe watching that from this, is that it's about how anybody, just like you said, Cole, can be pushed to murder, but that's also true of like them wanting to murder this guy, them wanting to murder this perpetrator. <laughs> he brings out the animal and anybody he meets. We all know a guy like this motherfucker. <laughs> I read one of their tweets at least once a day. Movie's <laughs> <laughs> a really big influence on Bong Joon Ho's memories. Oh yeah, he's talked at length about how influential this film was on his entire career. It shows in literally everything he's ever made. Oh yeah, <laughs> you can draw the line from this to Parasite, even. Yeah, it's amazing that since this film has gotten released on the Criterion Collection. It's gone from a yeah. 4.0 to a 4.1 right. in a matter of days. How many movies, when they reach a wider audience, do their average ratings go up? There's such a direct line to something like Best Picture winning, most viewed film on Letterboxd Parasite, giving this film that platform. It's doing wonders already. This year, 1997. I'm always confused oh. because I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read them off real quick. You got Takeshi Katano's Hanabi. You got this movie Cure. You got End of Evangelion. You got Princess Mononoke. You got Perfect Blue. The Japanese went to the next level in 97. <laughs> Something special in the air. And David Lynch is over here with Lost Highway doing... <laughs> just going just, just like crazy. Oh. <laughs> in, in terms of other 97 movies that are maybe a little controversial, like A Clockwork Orange, I think you could also sort of make a comparison yeah. to Funny Games. Mm. This idea, like, just the way that Mamiya behaves is so akin to the way that those two characters in Funny Games will fuck with the people that they're kind of terrorizing. They're not behaving like a criminal being interrogated. They're yeah. behaving like they're in control at all times. Right. He's locked away in a prison behind a glass wall, <laughs> yet he's still winning somehow. John Doe has the upper hand. There's no way to beat him. Another one right there. Mm -hmm. Seven. The movie's focus is on how systems that we have in place to check criminality from schools, hospitals, prisons, don't do anything about criminality. They just don't. Nope. There's really nothing that can be done at the end of the day. All you can try to do is try to stop the bleeding and hope that it dries up, but there's still going to be X's on everybody's necks. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's contagious. You have about as much luck with getting rid of evil as you would getting rid of contagious diseases. Where Seven, to go back to that parallel, embraces almost like the first reformed mentality mm -hmm. of, well, somebody has to do something. This is a little more reserved and quiet. And I mean, is there any point to doing anything? Oh, maybe I should just smoke a blunt, chill out. <laughs> Wait for all this to blow over. A lot of stuff in there with the psychiatrist. He's sort of trying to yeah. keep a lid on the detective. You know, don't don't lose your head. Don't yeah. get in too deep. It can and it will consume you every time. Mm -hmm. You see that throughout all detective fiction. Yeah. It's just like in the nature of that job. I think another parallel just working off of the contagiousness is Kiyoshi Kurosawa's other really big movie books. Oh, yeah. Where mm -hmm. there's like a contagious wave of suicides and which is you know obviously very loaded within contemporary japanese history and just japanese yeah. culture in general like there would just be a shot of mumia's face 
and all you can see is the outline of them and the cigarette in the dark. And you're like, ah! And, you know, there's the impulse. There's the woman in the dark standing against the wall in blue. Yeah. And then she starts moving towards you a little bit. And you're like, Fuck. <laughs> I like Kurosawa. You can pretty much see everything in all of the movies that he makes. Like, there's not much obfuscation of the scary shit. And therefore, I think in terms of filmmaking, at least, I think he might be the most viscerally terrifying filmmaker alive. There's a very brutal honesty in his work as a director that makes it so terrifying. Yeah. It's almost Hanukkah-esque. Yeah. I, think. Uh-huh. I thought of... Uh-huh. You're reading my mind? <laughs> Beautiful. I've only seen about half of Cache, uh, but that yeah. comparison actually came to mind while watching this yesterday. And fuck, I should finish that movie. I should. Yeah. What a fucking movie. Yeah. What's the most central shot of Funny Games, if not the really long static take after the child's been shot <laughs> and you've got the two parents that are just kind of like struggling to figure out what's going on, the two killers have left. There's a moment just like it in this when you see after Mamiya goes to the cop shop and gets the cop to kill the other cop, he just shoots him right in the head. <laughs> the whole scene is just one long static shot He's getting on a bicycle. He's going to go do his rounds. It's going, 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 boom. And he falls down, and you just see the blood start pooling into the gravel. Much as the water in the doctor sequence begins to pool once it's knocked off the shelf. The biggest, baddest shot of this movie to me is so subtle, because you've seen a couple versions of it already, but it's when he's in the psychiatrist's house. And he opens up the door and you see the fucking silver X on yeah. his wall. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no. Oh, he got him. Oh, gosh. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, nobody is safe. <laughs> Again, in Pulse, like when you see the big smears on oh, people's yeah. walls. Oh, and you're yeah. like, yeah. fuck. Fuck. <laughs> Kurosawa's great strength with these two films, and in particular Cure, is his ability to create a very visually distinct location. Yeah. If we were to use Pulse as an example, it's the room with the red tape around the door. To keep working off of that psychiatrist character, we see a very extended sequence in his home, and he's got you know a desk, and he's got the lined bookshelves. It's just kind of like very calm, warm tones, real nice-looking place. At least when I look at it, I'm like, I would love to live here. And then the next time you see it, it's covered in a bunch of those little crime markers, one, two, three, four, five, six. And you know that something horrible has happened. Mm-hmm. So he's really good at establishing a location and then using that to do something to you. In Mamiya's cell that he's in for most of the second half of the movie, when you look into it, you can see every inch of the cell except the bathroom, which has like a little mm-hmm. alcove. So you look in it and you see that it's empty and you're like, how is it empty, dude? <laughs> he's really good at making you feel comfortable and then pulling the rug out from underneath your feet. A pretty long static take of when Takabe and Mia are in that cell and Mia's sitting in the chair in the bathroom part. It lingers on this take long enough for you to be like, why the fuck is this room built like this? <laughs> and then you almost forget what they're saying to each other and then things escalate in the conversation. Another quick pulse parallel is just that. That movie is a lot about suicide. Yeah. To me, this movie has a lot of thoughts on its mind about therapy. The perpetrator Mm. in this case is a psychology student. 
moments, he's like, tell me about your life. Tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your wife. Tell me about everything that bothers you in this world. It's a perversion of psychotherapy. But in that central scene with him and Takabe, what he's doing is getting Takabe to kind of like unleash all these inner feelings that he has. He's using the kind of reserved nature, I would say, of the Japanese average citizen to want to spill your guts. Just say everything that's on your mind. Tell me every way that somebody pisses you off. That cathartic release. And I think that's so much of like what is being weaponized in terms of Mamiya's technique. Particularly with Takabe, that references his wife. Which is another interesting sort of parallel with Mamiya. Because mm-hmm. Mamiya's got this whole thing where he's like, I don't remember where I am. Who am I? Oh no, amnesia. And Takabe's wife actually has amnesia. And that's a major conflict that runs throughout kind of like the B storyline of the film. For example, like one of the earliest shots that you see is Takabe come home and the dryer's running or the washer. I forget if it's the washer or the dryer, but one of the two's running and he just goes and shuts it off. And he just came home from a dry cleaner. And you're like, why is this fucking washing machine on? Because the movie loves mm-hmm. to do things like that for you. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a non-diegetic drone. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I watched mm-hmm. it, I was like, why is he messing with me here? His wife is the first character that you see in the film because she's in mm-hmm. therapy. Yeah. Opening with the uh, reading Bluebeard specifically. Yeah. Do you guys know anything? I don't know anything about the inner text there. If there is any meaningful intertext there. No, I. that's one of the parts of the movie that I still haven't cracked. I don't think. There's at least two and there may be one that I'm not remembering. Conversations between Takabe's wife and her therapist that we see and i'm not 100 percent sure of what those scenes are there for in the grand scheme of the whole picture but they are fascinating and they're created in such a way that you're like well clearly this means quite a bit i just kind of took them to be sort of like a flowers for algernon deal where it's like she's reading the book and then at the end she's like i know how this ends this happens blah 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 and then the second mm-hmm. time the doctor hands her the book and she's like I've never seen this before. And so you just get yeah. this sort of sense that her memory maybe comes and goes a little bit. It's inconsistent and hard yeah. to predict. And eventually he sort of has her put into that doctor's office in a more permanent day-to-day way. One of the first bits of horror in this movie is a sequence where Takabe comes home and sees his wife has hanged herself in the kitchen. False moment. Uh-huh. The way that that scene is played, you just completely think it's happened. It doesn't really yeah. seem like a totally rational reaction to the conflict up to that point, which you see in his face. He's just so mortified and scared and sad. And then he sort of comes to and realizes that that's like an illusion. And at that point, you realize that this really tight movie at any point could throw you something that was not real. Or that at any point before this, it could have thrown you something that was not real. It really fucking throws the entire movie into like a very unreliable territory, I think. Yeah, it's constantly fucking with your head. Especially considering that the whole thing is from the perspective of Takabe, who is in a less overt fashion than is seen in so many other movies like this, becoming more and more untethered. To such a degree that you may not even really latch onto that until his wife's therapist is like, you look like you need to be in here. Right. I mean, like, oh, fuck, he does. Does. I mean, he looks like <laughs> Jill and Holiday, yeah. the Zodiac, <laughs> just fucking 
burnt out. Yeah, that yeah. second time around, you just have a clearer idea of that being his arc, and you see how early it starts too, even though it is subtle. Because it's as early as that first washing machine mm-hmm. shot. We were just talking about Vortex. He's living the Dario Argento character and Vortex's life in his 30s. And just before that, he goes to the dry cleaners and there's some dude yeah. having a fucking Michael Douglas and falling down moment next to him. Just Or, you know, perhaps more accurately, a Justin Theroux in season one of the <laughs> leftovers moment. Just mumbling horrible shit. <laughs> it almost sounds like he's talking about the dry cleaning clerk. But yeah. either way, whether he is or he isn't, he breaks from that kind of bumble into like, oh, thank you for my thing. I will see you later. Like he kind of goes from like psycho to polite in like a split second. Yeah. And I think that the whole movie is sort mm-hmm. of in that handful of seconds. Kurosawa is also just such a master of creating tense sequences. When he first meets the school teacher on the beach, you have this air of malevolence from the soundtrack, which is very droney. You've got the waves coming in and they're just real heavy. And he's just kind of following this dude you have again it's not quite a static shot because mm-hmm. you're panning from right to left but it's from you know a, a long distance away and you're just sort of watching one character follow the other follow the other follow the other follow the other and you just feel like something's wrong you gotta run man you gotta get away right. from this guy yeah i remember so vividly the first time watching this it's yeah. one of those like ineffable purely cinematic sequences where you're like i don't know what's wrong here, but something is. You've seen the victims. You don't know what's yeah. really going on. And then all of a sudden, there's just this unknown element standing on the beach, looking yeah. like he should be fronting a post-punk band. Yeah, I would say that the deeper they get into the investigation, the more they lose their grip on what's real and what's not real. Yes. And so the movie progresses from being a very procedurally oriented thriller into being almost full-fledged horror in that last 20 minutes starting with the psychiatrist character in that scene i mentioned earlier when they're in the apartment sort of starts spacing out and you just go on a trip with him to this completely unknown building again with the kurosawa settings it's like a very visually striking place that you have not seen at any point in the movie so it's like well where are we you're in a field the field's covered in fog and everything is just so ominous There's just so many different images of things that you can't really explain that are based in history or a character's backstory. Edit starts breaking down, the sequencing of images starts breaking down so that you go from something that's quite linear and easy to understand to something that's really throwing you through a loop. The film mimics the mental breakdown of these two leads. It feels like there are so rarely any establishing shots after a certain point in the film. Oh, yeah. That it does create the feeling that you have woken up from a sort of fugue state, and now you're here, and now you're back in the apartment, and things are happening, and there's an X on the wall. How the hell? Who put that here? Earlier in the movie, too, there's a lot of sequences that feel almost truncated. When he meets with a school teacher, he flicks the lighter, tell me about your wife. We look at the school teacher and he reacts and we cut away. When he's with the cop, look at the lighter, mm-hmm. do this. When he's with the doctor, look at the water. And you get a little mm-hmm. bit more of it each time. But every time it's cutting away early, yeah. don't get all the pieces. So just in the same way that you have that discontinuity of the lack of establishing shots in the back half, the first half will establish something and then just stop right in the middle. 
don't know what happened until somebody comes across the crime scene later. Right. It adds to that sense of not knowing what is going on. It doesn't give you right away the entire process of, oh, this is how we get people to kill each other. In my opinion, effectively achieving the mindset of the wife character, who yeah. obviously has early onset Alzheimer's or amnesia or whatever exactly is going on with her, where she gets lost and confused. She's going, going good. Oh, shit, I don't know what happened. Where am I? It's the middle of the night. I'm in the middle of the street. Oh, shit, there's my husband. He's mad. Right. There's these missing moments in the timeline that just don't make sense. Sequence that you were talking about where the wife gets lost. It's one of the moments that you get the clearest image, I think, of the setup between Takabe and his home life. And at least on this watch, I remember all of it hitting me at once. Just like, oh, fuck. Okay, this dude. Is this is the last guy who needs to be saddled with all this? But he's also never going to say that. Yeah, right. And that he resents it too on both ends. He resents the suspects. He resents the victims. He resents his wife. He resents himself. <laughs> yeah, it's all about keeping that resentment locked away until it hits the boiling point. Which I think the villain is all about triggering that boiling point. Yeah, he's the final little kick of extra heat before things explode. And you know what that reminds me of? Morgan, you're going to love this comp. I was thinking about this when I watched it earlier, and I felt like such mm-hmm. a dork. I'm glad I saved it for this late in the episode, because I didn't want to open it with it. It's like an Elseworlds Batman story where the Joker wins. It's just one bad day. Ah! Uh, <laughs> ah! Madness is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. Ah, <laughs> oh, beautiful. It actually kind of fun parallels with another Nolan movie, Inception, the whole idea of like, an idea buried in the subconscious murderous mm. intent. Wife guy. <laughs> I bet Chris Nolan likes this damn movie. I think he tried to do it again. It's called Memento. And it's Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's pretty good. If every movie was just trying to be this movie, movies would only be good. <laughs> For those who have seen it anyway, the ending is sort of the thing that people remember yeah. about it. Pretty much because it's just as quiet and from a wide shot and a wide perspective where you have to be kind of eagle-eyed and a keen viewer to see exactly what is going down in cachet. The relevant detail of the shot is on screen for less than one second. I I (laughs) checked. (laughs) Uh And it's like, it's both jarring and totally expected because the climax of the film does not give the impression that anything has been resolved yeah right and this sort of seems like this is the natural way that this situation has progressed because people are deeply flawed animals and anyone who gets close enough to this is going to have this symbiotic thing hanging off of them that will spread to as many others as possible. Mm-hmm. It was especially pertinent feeling when I watched this in February of last year. There's a sense of no matter how many cases you close, how many people you put behind bars, or how many perpetrators you know you wipe off the face of the earth, crime doesn't stop. Right. It's an endless cycle. Does justice mean anything right. if it isn't preventative in some way. And if you're looking at it on a fairly surface level, the film has a clear answer of not really, but even then that clear answer is not a resolute no, it's a not really. 
that's another one of the great things about this film. The wide shot that I was referring to where there's a lot going on and it shows you all of it. You just have to be looking in the right places. And if you're not looking in the right places, it might elude you mm. and keep you returning and trying to piece it together. Right. And in so doing, the infection that is in the film has metaphorically spread to you, the viewer. That's always how I talk about Zodiac, is that it's a one more time movie. Let me just watch mm-hmm. that one more time. Let me just, let me just, just run that back. Let me, can I see that again? Can I go back through that again? Enhance. You become Robert Graysmith by the end of the movie because you just want to rifle through all the case files. Like, Man, if I just looked at that one more time, I'm sure that I would know. I'm sure that I would get it. And Cachet's the same way. You feel like you could start it the minute it ends. You're like, all right, I'm going to watch that again. That video's got to have right. something in there. Let me see that. Fucker. Just keep playing it over and over. The one thing I really wanted to talk about in the ending real quick is a shot that's going to haunt me for the rest of my days. And that's when a nurse oh. in the convalescence finds a certain oh, yeah. somebody in a wheelchair with an X right, right. over their neck. And that's just one of the most yeah. unsettling images I've ever seen. I don't like it. Again, it's another shot that's just in 10 seconds. You just see it just a little bit mm-hmm. as compared to some of the you know really long held compositions of this movie. And I mean, like, she looks like she's been dead for weeks when you see her. Oh, it's yeah. Like, Ooh, that's a mummy. <laughs> <laughs> she looks like the monkey that's been tied up in the fucking bathtub. <laughs> what the hell is that? Weird occult shit, bro. I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of things that I have not figured out about this movie. Movies like that. this, The Exorcist, get a lot of mileage out of just sort of like sometimes animals are yeah. Just scary. Yeah, it's like there's a monkey in a cage going. <laughs> <laughs> mm, nope. Moment when you see those monkeys in the cages and all that stuff, you're going in through Mamiya's old apartment, his John Doe lair, full of mesmerism books yeah. and stuff. And again, it's just one of those distinct environments because you're just in this shanty apartment that looks like it's made out of cardboard boxes, old bits of dumpster, and it's great at just giving you this fucking uneasy Mm -hmm. mood one of my favorite just shots of the movie it's repeated twice when takabe takes his wife to the doctor they're sitting on the back row Mm -hmm. of the bus and behind them it just looks like clouds through the window it almost looks like a bus is flying through a cloud like an airplane or something it's a very dreamlike image to me and in this movie of kind of like unreliable stuff the whole one of the things with them is like let's go on vacation and she's talking to him like oh we're gonna go to okinawa do you think the weather's nice down there and he's like we're not going to okinawa and i was like dude is he killing her is that what's happening here like what is this and it's just them going to the hospital but it plays this image for you in a way where you're like i mean it could easily be that it could easily be like snap he wakes up he's just strangling Mm -hmm. currently taking advantage of a two-week criterion channel free trial just to get at it the prior version that they had on the Criterion channel, which I watched the Telltale Tale in 2020, <laughs> looked like crap. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't any good at yeah, all. Yeah, it's not good. And these Kurosawa movies need it. They're very low lit. There's a lot of low lit environments and shadowy. And, you know, there's a scene, for instance, where a psychiatrist comes into the, the Mamiya's mm-hmm. cell and Mamiya's like in the corner, in the shadow of the corner. You can see him there. Only with the benefit of a really, really good transfer yeah. can you see it. There. Yeah. That's the key. Very similar thing with Pulse, where it's like if... Yeah. I'm not sure if there's been any new transfers of that in the last handful of years. 
Arrow is the most yeah. current Blu-ray. Yeah, and that and that was a, I borrowed Jake's copy of that. I remember that being pretty good, but it's easy to see like if you watching a slightly lesser transfer of that. Don't watch this shit at noon. Yeah. No, the sun's out. Yeah, wait till nighttime. <laughs> you know, you might have to dick around with your TV if it's a nice right. TV to not have the blacks kind of grainy looking. Right, real eerie damn movie. I watch almost every movie with headphones with Bluetooth headphones. Yeah. I live in an apartment. I find it more convenient than using the TV's volume. Uh, this is a nightmare. Fucking washing machines in your ear. Like, what is happening? <laughs> Get out. Because he's doing like hypnosis. And the oh, whole yeah. hypnosis thing is like through sound and through light. And so in the scene where Takabe's in his cell and it starts to rain, you hear that pitter patter pop, 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 pop. Or even just throughout that scene, you can kind of tell what he's doing hypnotizing him by like throwing different things on the ground or like banging these like pieces of food that are like mm-hmm. nuts into a bowl just like clatter 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 a uh, takeaway that i had that i wanted to write in my letterbox review because i thought it was clever was he's using your senses to hypnotize you so it's about the way your senses can play tricks on your mind and then once the ideas in your mind you start hallucinating so then your mind starts playing tricks on your senses so the senses trick the mind and the mind tricks the senses and what is cinema if not that i remember when i recommended it to you morgan i was just sort of like to me this is the best version of a movie that you like more than anyone i know <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty much your exact words and i was like all right i'll watch it. <laughs> shitty criterion channel transfer <laughs> landed just outside of my top 50 of all time oh, yeah. on this last watch so it's like you know you, you might have been onto something I think there's a way to read pure as if Mumia is not a real guy, as if Mumia is the kind of lurking instinct mm-hmm. inside everyone. He's the shape. Exactly. More mythological. I had the thought earlier during this conversation that I'm not sure if the wife is real or still alive anymore, at least. Because when you okay. see her hang herself and then you see the next shot, she's alive. You're like, well, this is a little Rashomani. Yeah. I don't know which one of these is real. What <laughs> happened? And I have no credible reason to believe anything that it's real, because let's roll through all the characters who could, you know, Takabe, no. Uh, yeah. The psychiatrist, no. Uh, <laughs> Mamiya, absolutely the fuck not. So who's going to come through and corroborate what you've been seeing at any point that you have any <laughs> faith in exactly? By the time it's over, you just sort of have the impression that it could be anyone, that it might be everyone. The ending's very much like, good luck, you're on your own. <laughs> Try figuring this shit out. Protect your neck. Oh, Kyoshi Kurosawa's cure. Yeah, movies are good. What a picture. It's unbelievable to me that this movie and Perfect Blue came out the same year, and then people <laughs> kept making psychological thrillers. What arrogance, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, though, if y'all keep making them, I'll keep watching them. We did open with Decision to Leave, so yeah. I must be full of shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to make lesser versions of this, it's probably still going to be pretty, pretty solid. I guess if I can't have cure, I'll settle for memories of murder. It's fine. <laughs> Woe is me. Another beautiful looking yeah. Criterion Blu-ray. Mwah. What a tragedy. Mm. All right. Well, this has been fun. Thank you, Morgan, for joining us yeah. and talking about cure. <laughs> and Cole, thank you. Of course. A spooky pleasure as always. That's right. Happy Halloween, everybody. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye. <laughs>